1: This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thanks for joining me. Today, we are going to be talking to David Huckfelt, who is a member of the Minneapolis folk band The Pines, and he has put a solo record out this year called Stranger Angels. We're going to thank our sponsors and then get into what David and I talk about on Basic Folk. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Tina and Her Pony, a queer duo bringing traditional Appalachian music and vocal harmonies into the 21st century. Visit tinaandherpony.com. Like I said, David Huckfelt, founding member of the Pines, uh, David is a person who emanates poetry in everything he does. Uh, From his solo work to his outlook on life, basically, uh, David Huckfeld is like living artwork. When I was preparing for this interview, I had like so many pages of questions because every time he, you know, would write something or every time he would have an interview with someone else, it would spark so many different ideas. I think I bring that up a couple of times in the interview, but it was kind of difficult to prepare. We just had... Uh, About an hour to talk, and it felt like not long enough, but it was a real pleasure to speak with him about his Iowa upbringing, his connection to indigenous people, and his two-week solitary writing retreat on the most remote and least-visited national park uh, that is located a six-hour boat ride off of Lake Superior And also, like I I said, that David is, like, very poetic in his delivery, so I tried to get David to admit that when he was a kid, you know, like most people his own age in the late 80s, early 90s, he was into, like, Ninja Turtles and The Lion King as a young kid. But he just, like, kept coming back with examples, like, really being into Waylon Jennings in uh, that Big Bird movie, Follow That Bird, or, like, Muddy Waters on Mr. Rogers, you know, just... He's like, oh yeah, sure, I liked He-Man and and stuff too, but I'm like, I don't believe you. But he's just very cool. Anyways, we get into some pretty deep and serious conversations about souls, rights of women, and spirituality. David is a theology school dropout, and he talks about what caused him to walk away from that life path. Uh, David's music sounds like the earth. It has this warm darkness to it. And on his solo album, Stranger Angels, he uses these really interesting field recordings uh, that give the song an extra, sometimes eerie, layer. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to David. And I also enjoyed listening to his album, Stranger Angels. We'll hear the title track, a clip of the song Stranger Angels. And get to our conversation with David Huckfelt on Basic Folk.
0: I'm the next of kin to the wayward wind. I'm going. I can't sing this dance, dance this song. I'm gone. Some place where I won't make the greedy richer. On the rock and burst box shore.
1: David Huckfelt, thank you so much for talking to me
0: Cindy, it's a pleasure I'm I'm really glad to speak with you and thanks for having me
1: Yeah, so pumped You're originally, and correct me if I'm wrong Spencer, Ohio uh, Spencer, Iowa?
0: Correct, yep, Clay County
1: Okay, I was looking up some pictures of what the town looked like but could you like paint a picture?
0: Well, you'd have to almost pick an era because, you know um, quite some time ago, uh, you know, Spencer was a pretty vibrant, beautiful farm town. Um, you know, surrounded by uh, family farms, kind of a population center with a little main street and um, a big county fair every fall in September. And um, over the course of my lifetime, you know, much of that has changed with um, with corporate farming and a Walmart and a Home Depot coming to town and so the main street is a little quiet these days mm. um just a just a quaint uh, farm town that that grew a little bigger than than the others around it
1: and you lived with your grandparents when you were a teenager
0: i did um yeah my parents uh split up and my grandparents were i mean we were close to begin with but if you uh if you end up moving in with your grandparents after they've been married for sixty-three years, um, while you're still in high school, then you become very close and seeing what, uh, how that generation dealt with modern realities, and um, and so they had a little far, uh, hobby farm, not a big farm, but a little farm on the edge of town, and it became kind of my sanctuary, solitude, and. Um, shelter from all the stuff that was going on in my world it was a pretty beautiful year to get to know them you know I was the only kid in high school that was eating a five-course breakfast probably every day <laughs> thanks to my grandmother so oh wow yeah
1: um and then David when did your affinity for nature begin and then where were the outside places you were drawn to at first
0: well a couple places I mean my grandfather for one you know I I I would serve him lunch every day he ran they ran a little appliance store and he would come home for lunch and we would sit and talk and i somehow you know i developed the ability to pull stories out of him and i had the time and i was there so i heard a lot about his hunting and fishing trips into canada and wyoming and uh western nebraska and he did things for me like i remember being you know about eight or nine years old and he he sponsored a wolf up in northern Minnesota. There was this program you could sponsor a wolf at a, oh, a wow. recovery center, and you'd get little updates and stuff. And it was all in the mail, not online, but I had pictures of my wolf, and he was named Lakota, I remember. And uh, Oh. <laughs> and, you know, so there was that aspect of, um, of my grandfather's experience. And then, you know, our family was spread out across the western United States and my my uncle especially he uh, brought me out to Montana for the first time in high school and uh, took me to a campground in the Paradise Valley which is just between Livingston, Montana and the north entrance of Yellowstone so it truly is one of the most spectacular and wild places in the the 48 states and uh, I think if you come from Iowa everything looks amazing the ocean looks amazing the mountains look <laughs> amazing so really it just kind of set in me this idea that i found a way i could be i could be in nature i was never an extreme you know extreme camping extreme sports kind of person i just liked i liked sitting quietly in some beautiful place for as long as i could and just sort of letting it soak in. So that was a young experience uh, for me, for sure, started me off at, on that path.
1: Where was music in your young life, and like what were people listening to around you that resonated?
0: Well, you know, we didn't have anyone in my immediate family that played an instrument, but I had another uncle who was a guitar player. I knew he had a band, and I saw him a couple times. But more than that, it's dawned on me... Uh, to a greater extent, as I've gotten older, my mother just absolutely lives and breathes and loved music. She had this enormous vinyl collection, you know, and I would be sifting through it. I mean, she she wasn't just a person who had music. She listened to music constantly. Uh, her favorites were Fleetwood Mac and Rod Stewart. I mean, uh, I don't always... I I grew to, you know, we don't always overlap in taste, but we always overlap Mm -hmm. in the ability and the curiosity. So those things started out, and my uncles would send me music. He made me kind of the coolest mixtapes, I mean, cassette tapes. I still have some of them with, you know, outtake versions of Rocky Raccoon and some comedians and practical jokes and songs and novelty songs and (laughs) Uh, you know, I had this kind of, the. as I get older, it was a very eclectic upbringing. I can remember sitting at my little record player and playing, you know, the Robin Hood and Little John soundtrack done by Roger Miller, you know, and flipping the mm-hmm. pages, Peter and the Wolf. So it, it was just that feeling of like, you can tell when someone absolutely loves music, it starts, it's infectious. And that was, mm-hmm. that was going on in the, in my house for sure. At least as a young person. It I took on my own approach as I got older to find the right. stuff I liked, but it was there.
1: Let's go back to the the Disney stuff. Um, I was trying to figure out how old you are and I think are you maybe just about forty or
0: I am not quite. Yeah, I am okay. I am forty. Yep, exactly.
1: So I'm thirty seven. Okay. And it sounds like we maybe had a similar like Disney experience. Where I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to like think about like um, Robin Hood definitely is an older Disney film, but then like the Disney Renaissance happened, mm-hmm. you know. And I remember having um, the cassettes of like all of the um, movies that came out: Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. Those were the
0: four. Sure.
1: And yeah, it definitely reminded me of that. Did you ever get into the Disney like Renaissance film, or did you always, did you just stick with like the super cool, like, thirty year old <laughs> Disney films? <laughs> no,
0: you know, I, I think um, I think that for me, there, I mean, if I can trace it from where my musical sensibilities ended up and try to look back at where they began, I mean, you had things in my childhood like you know, like and Jennings in the Ses- in the uh, Sesame Street movie. You know, and you had... uh,
1: Follow That Bird?
0: Yeah, yeah. And you had uh, an episode of the Mr. Rogers show where the Mississippi Delta blues musician Otha Turner and Jesse May Hemphill come on to teach Mr. Rogers about hill country blues. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I can even remember Johnny Cash in uh, Little House on the Prairie. You know, it's it's kind of... um, And I... I'm not just trying to pick out these cool examples. I listened to plenty of bad pop music, too, you know. <laughs> Tell but.
1: me about He-Man <laughs> and Ninja <Absolutely>. Turtles. <laughs> yeah.
0: It, it was all there.
1: Well, that's good to know, because, like, yeah, all of the examples that, that you're giving me, I would think, are very, like, authentic presentations of music within, like, a kid's world, yeah. you know, At, that's not corny, right? you know. Like, Little Mermaid kind of corny but awesome but you know but yeah yeah no question here just a just a comment
0: yeah no (laughs) I feel the same I mean I, I think that you know there's a great comedian named Mitch Hedberg from he's from Minnesota where I live now and he said any book is a kid's book if the if the little dude can read you know (laughs) <laughs> and it's kind of this idea that, you know, my my mom loved the stories behind the music and, and people's lives. And so I feel like, you know, when I was growing up and even when I got into high school, you know, I had her record collection, you know, Led Zeppelin, Cat Stevens, Gordon Lightfoot, just this stuff. And I thought, like, I thought I was the coolest kid in Iowa, you know, because... <laughs> Um, you
1: probably were. <laughs> I don't know.
0: I was pretty nerdy in a lot of other ways. But, um, yeah, the the affinity for music and the, the love of it as a part of daily life, I'd say that's what I got from my my childhood.
1: Was your mom into Carole King at all? Like the Maury Sendak, really rosy stuff?
0: You know, she... Not so much, she, I don't know what, I don't know how he even described. She loved the Eagles, and, uh, and she just, like, I mean, Rod Stewart sits on a mountain in her mind, It's the God, <laughs> the God of all things, you know. She wouldn't listen, to, I mean, I guess, you know, it, I would say the biggest were Rod Stewart and Stevie Nicks. Those just, like, kind of define the sounds of my, my childhood to me.
1: So then, David, when did you start playing music?
0: Well, I was what they call a late bloomer today when people are starting their kids off with violin lessons at age four. You know, I uh, I didn't really touch a guitar until I was um, 18. I'd always been a writer. I, I thought I would be, I wanted to be a poet or a preacher. Those were my, uh, those were my early ambitions, or a baseball player. Really, that was kind of... That's kind of my aim, and then, um, <laughs> but like most singer-songwriter type people that you've probably talked to, a lot of them at least, there's a there's a time when somebody, you know, plays you a Bob Dylan record, and then everything just kind of flips upside down on its head. So, <laughs> Blown in the Wind" and "Folsom Prison" were the first two y- songs that I tried to learn on guitar um, when I was. Uh, senior in high school and my whole world was shifting pretty quickly so didn't have any lessons or anything I just listened to the records and taught myself chords and um, and I hoped that I could turn some of these writings I did into songs at some point that was that was one of my simple goals at the time
1: and then it happened
0: <laughs> it happened to some to some to whatever degree this reality is you could say that it happened
1: so it's very clear to me that you enjoy making music with friends. When did you first come to realize that joy of playing music with other people, and how has that experience evolved for you over time?
0: It was interesting because I, you know, in, in Northwest Iowa, where I'm from, uh, the main thing that's going on for a young man is uh, sports, a lot of sports, team sports basketball football you know all these I was always surrounded by a bunch of people and we're always learning how to work together so when i was asked to (laughs) my first jam session or whatever you know in iowa city i i was so mortified and nervous because i figured i had no business being there and wasn't good enough and but very naturally i think i realized that i you know I never was the person who was the most proficient on their instrument but I definitely have a very easy time memorizing songs and like in all the verses to all the songs I <laughs> I was you know around a campfire I found I was the only one that could finish you know a Neil Young song a John Prine song I just I've always been able to do that somehow so for me to have my limitations and then get on board uh Playing with some with people with other talents in collaboration who who understand the power of a song, that's just about you know the best thing I can imagine. Honestly, it endlessly rewarding, improvisational. Um, I just really enjoyed it, and I wanted to be the kind of person that was easy to play with. You know, a lot of songwriters. What does that mean? Well, I think that I mean you know part of it is, is being a decent human being. And listening, mm. listening more than you, more than you speak, and then, you know, also just technically speaking, you know, as a rhythm guitar player, I mean, I think a lot of songwriters they're so used to playing with by themselves, they don't know if their time, their time is bad, you know, their their rhythm is off. They just um, they're not quite aware. And if you play with other people, a drummer, a good drummer will let you know. A good bass player will let you know. And it's uh, some of our favorite folk songwriters. It's well, really overlooked what great guitar players they are and how they lay a foundation. I mean, when you hear three notes of a John Prine song, uh, finger picking, you know it's him immediately. Yeah, you know so so that was important to, to me.
1: Is it okay if we have a conversation about faith? Absolutely. You're a former theology student. Is it possible to talk about what originally connected you to faith and what made you want to dedicate your life to it?
0: It's, yeah, it is possible. It's, it's murky in there. I mean, in the sense of, you know, because we can only see where we have been, you know, from the distance that we've traveled from that time. You know, so looking back... You know, I have a different understanding of why I was drawn to, you know, philosophical, religious, kind of existential questions. I think it's almost inherent in the Midwest, in the in the land of long winters and stuff. It's like you either life leads you to a place where you are pretty cool and accepting with where you are, just being your reality, or it drives you nuts what you might be missing and why things are the way they are and I
1: Let think I guess which one you were yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I was very much like um because it's a conservative area in the country uh, Iowa itself is and Northwest Iowa especially you have this net this net of assumptions you know every three blocks there's a different church and every one of them has some small variation on the Christian theme, but if you are lucky enough to have some holes poked in your world, you know, to go to places to travel, to go to Montana, to go to, you know, I went to Chicago as a young person, like, things don't add up. I mean, I, the explanations begin to look kind of rickety, you know, and the you know, if you ch- just visit, you know, I had the experience of going to Pine Ridge Indian Reservation as a pretty young man with my uncle to take uh, winter clothes and boots and some donations. And that Christian worldview really wasn't holding up very well for me, the more of the world that I saw. So I I thought what I'd can like... You,
1: can you talk yeah. a little bit more about, about that trip? Because I, I did read about that, that your uncle took you there, that he majored in American Indian studies. Can you tell me a little bit more about your uncle and a little bit more about what you saw there on the reservation?
0: You know, first of all, just uncles and aunts are important people. You know, we're not quite as connected to a tribal society as our ancestors were, but, you know, what that role is to take you out of your comfort zone and keep you safe and let you see something that might scare you it might wow you it's certainly going to make an impression and you know uh, my uncle was involved in the church but in an overwhelmingly humanitarian way in other words you know what I noticed is when there was a flood in Cedar Rapids Iowa it was you know my uncle took a church group to go and clean up Um, they've been to he took kids to Appalachia to build bunk beds uh, in really poor communities in Kentucky. They've been to Juarez, Mexico, you know, and I I had this respect for the humanitarian aspect of it, but the worldview itself, um, you know, started to really not fit and to crumble when, when you see, for instance, you know, what's been done to Native cultures in the name of Christianity, um, and also just to have... Come into contact with a worldview, a narrative, a creation story, a moral code—that is nothing. It's got nothing to do. It's older than you know the evangelical church down the street. You know, it's mm-hmm. a—it's an ancient culture, and so I think it just—it just kind of—it's like a crowbar that just knocks off the the assumptions that maybe everybody in your own little small town isn't right about all this stuff and taking for granted the fact that they they attach to this this one particular story and um it began to feel more like a trap and a box and quite Mm. honestly it began to feel more like a lie because a lot of lies have been told over the course of american history to justify some aspects so, you know, if, I guess I'm kind of rambling, but what I mean to say is that mm-hmm. I have both sides. I, I had a certain amount of respect for the fact that on this earth and in this country, sometimes the only people that help others in need are people with a, with a strong faith. They can be extremely helpful, but as helpful as they can be, they can be extremely destructive with the same belief system, you know, and imposing it upon people, so <laughs> I had a lot of sh- I, I had a lot of stuff to figure out. I guess no wonder <laughs> I was so confused.
1: You can swear on this podcast. Okay,
0: a lot of shit to figure out because it was tough. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I read the quote about your first visit to that Indian reservation washed away two semesters of theology studies and most of what I was taught about American history, which is wild. So it was a, it was of course, in what you saw when you were there, but what about having conversations with native people?
0: well it you know it's the most like uh kind of loaded yeah, what's the word I'm looking for I mean fortuitous, yes, but like uh, foreshadowing um, moments that that day on Pine Ridge, I was you know sleeping on a high school gymnasium floor, and my Uncle he woke me up by putting a set of headphones on my on my head and on his Walkman who was playing John Trudell American Indian activist in a song called Crazy Horse. So
1: mm-hmm. that's that's
0: how I woke that morning and uh, of course I mean I was I was ripe to hear it. I need it was a a message I needed to hear and it, it was very stirring to me and then I tell you no lie like about an hour later we're having breakfast and someone Comes in and says, hey, you know, uh, John Trudell's in town today, and he's speaking over at the Jumping Bull compound where FBI agents were killed in 1979, Leonard Peltier, the whole story. It's There's a rally today, and he's there, and everyone's welcome. And my uncle just looked at me, and I looked at him, and... It's like, well, I think I'm supposed to go to that, you know. Mm-hmm. It just had a profound effect. I heard him talk, he talked for an hour and a half of uh, you know, from his heart about you know, about how to protect your spirit in today's world. And he was talking to to native people, but the message was it was there for anybody who would listen, you know. Your spirit's in danger. There are massive forces, corporate and otherwise, that wanna turn you into a machine. And um, I just, you know, that was about 15 years before we had the chance to bring him to Minneapolis with my band, The Pines, and write and record a song with him—the last recording he ever made before he died. You know, so the stars, the stars are involved, I guess, is what I'm saying. You know.
1: Wow, that's really powerful. <laughs> I was wondering if you can talk more about bringing native issues forward through your music particularly being a white man in america how do you work to be an ally
0: it's a endlessly refreshed question it has to be asked all the time because if you over identify yourself with as a spokesperson for anything you're already in in danger you know and i guess i, I you know i stick by some rules i mean there's a, an incredible book by Vine Deloria and it's just called We Talk, You Listen and it's kind of a litany of Native issues um, but it's still the best policy Yeah, I think relationships and friendships that arise around music are invaluable because what f- Facebook and Instagram and the internet has shown us is that the illusion that we're more connected we're really more isolated and we're really speaking increasingly just to those who think the same thoughts and the same ideals that we have you know mm-hmm. so there's something that can transpire in genuine friendships and partnerships that kind of bucks the stay in your lane mentality especially if you're not concerned with who is getting the credit and you know how to do a do your role you know i think i was just this weekend i played Water is Life Festival um, put on by Honor the Earth by Winona LaDuke in Duluth, you know. And um, I think that music is one of the last places where all the lines can get crossed. You know, collaboration, ownership matters so much less than the song that's being played and who's playing it. So... You know, I think of those good songs the way that I think of, like, our national parks or something. They belong to all of us, you know. Maybe Johnny Cash wrote it, you know, maybe um, Floyd Westerman wrote it, maybe John Trudell wrote it, maybe Woody Guthrie wrote it, but in a way, it was a gift to everyone, and I think you can bring rise to those issues and let the music speak for itself if you have open ear, open mind, and, Mm. you know, and you cultivate friendships, I mean. You know, some of it's being in the right place at the right time. I know that with John Trudell, you know, he was he was quite, quite ill when he did the song with us and he had a burning need to get as much of his art and his love out into the world as possible. And we happened to have one little channel that we could open up and to help him, you know, and I... I think that's just vital. I think that's happened throughout history and music's always played a big role.
1: So, let's talk about the Pines. That's your band that's been together for at least 15 years at this point. Um, yeah. with Ben and Alex Ramsey and they are the sons of Bo Ramsey who's a well-known guitarist in the folk world thanks to his work with people like Greg Brown and Bo and Greg's work together is pretty unconventional like pretty dark for the folk world not Mm -hmm. that it's like all dark but there's this like certain it's not a sinister darkness I guess but a certain darkness And it seems like that style has crept into the pines a little bit, as one might assume. But can you talk about what you like about the Ramsey's approach to music and maybe how your style would not be the same without them?
0: Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, there is, you know, there's an aspect of it's it's literally like like living and breathing songs, it's the it's the living example of not overthinking things. Um, it's like I mean, it's it's religion. If it's a uh, if you're practicing religion, you know the the uh, music. I mean, especially Bo re- record making with Bo Ramsey is is ritual. You know, it's literally a ritual. It has it has so much importance because the reverence they have for for art for music and and. So, you know, I could speak at length, you know, how much I, I've learned being in proximity to that, getting to make records with, with, with Bo and with Benson and Alex. It's, it's almost, it's, it's such a high reverence that, you know, it, it's very out of step with, with what music business is, um, especially now, you know. Mm. Records, records are things that can change your whole life you know, they change the way that you uh, think about your partner, your child, you know, they're, they literally are integrated in your, in your, in your work. So there's that reverence there. That's a big part of it. And then, you know, the other part of it, I think is, you know, the, the, the dark aspects of it, I think is the best way I can put it is there's a bravery to it. You know, I mean, that's good. Yeah. It's uh, pretty unafraid to stare down just how bad things can get and just how bad things can look and to say you know it's along the lines of like you know great russian novelists who you know they kind of layer you layer upon layer of of dark heavy before they blast you with light it's like that's 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 what i see i don't see it as being you know even the pines, you know, people would say we are dark and, and moody and stuff. But to me, it's a really about hope and bravery. I mean, I think, uh, you know, that's a, there's a great quote by David Foster Wallace. It says, the the truth will set you free, but not until it's done with you. And that's kind of the feeling I have is like greg brown's poetry is it's so brave it's so willing to look at things in the eye and it's not going to be convinced by you know some glib statement that everything's going to be okay you have you know it's very honest it's a very honest take on beauty on pain on sorrow on you know cultural bankruptcy it just you know it's it's unflinching and so that that definitely found its way into the Pines songwriting. Honestly, <laughs> you know, a lot of music out there, music will, it feels like you're listening, you're watching a commercial try to get you to be smarter, prettier, thinner, happier, you know. And sometimes you just want to hear, it's okay to be sad, you know, it really is. It's mm-hmm. okay to let that whole feeling of heaviness just be heavy and acknowledge it and and then maybe you can let it pass like a cloud you know that was a big part of what the pines did i think on tour and in our records is just give people a little bit of room to not be so fucking perfect all the time you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah
1: oh that's ain't that the truth Jeez. Uh, yeah are the pines done or will there be future recordings
0: i hope there will be future recordings i mean. The break that we have decided to take was very open-ended, and the only real solid thing about it is that it was not, you know, there was no solid ending to it. It was an actual, honest break, and when that happens, you never know. You don't know if you'll find yourselves back in that space or when, but I know for a fact that we didn't stop because there was no more music to be made together. Um, Mm You know, I think about 90% of an artist or songwriter's job, musician's job today is just to not, be, not to go from the endangered species list to the extinction list, you know, <laughs> because most yeah. people I know are somewhere <laughs> right around that line, you know, with streaming and with not being able to sell records and with everybody in the world on tour at the same time, it's, it's, it's tough, so we wanted to take a break and preserve our our lives and our sanity and do some other things for a while.
1: All right, we're forty two minutes into this interview. Let's talk about the new album. Okay, <laughs> um, the album Stranger Angels. So in twenty seventeen, you spent a couple weeks on Isle Royale, the largest island in the world's largest freshwater lake in Lake Michigan as an artist-in-residence selected by the National Park Service, which is so cool. Yeah. Um, how did you find out about this program? And also, how did you know that you needed this kind of environment to write?
0: Well, I mean, when I, um, you know, there again, it goes back to, I think, when I was a kid, I was fascinated with wolves. Absolutely enamored with them because of my grandfather because of, you know, going to Yellowstone. I think um, I had heard of Isle Royal, and it took me a couple times to get there. The first time I went, I thought you could just drive up, you know, to northern Minnesota and hop on a boat and just head over, and you can't. You have to, you have to be, you have to book your reservation passage on the ferry you know it's it's and fill out a form it's not a day trip you know what i mean it's not a it's not a leisure trip does it take
1: you said it took like six hours to get there by boat
0: yeah yeah it does wow. it does
1: what time of year did you go
0: the residency was in september um you know my first attempt i you know didn't work out like i said but but i i also i went back there I, I had um a trip over a day trip in someone else's boat who took us out just to see it and then i also went out uh with my partner and we backpacked and so from there from being there i found out about the artist program and you know i just said oh you know if there's a god capital uh small lowercase g um, I, I really think I could make some. I could make this residency really valuable, really work for me if I got the chance. And so I applied. And when I, you know, when I found out I got accepted, I mean, I, I almost wept. I was, I just was so, so much in need of that solitude because I also had been pretty much running the pines and managing the pines and booking the pines, and it squeezes out. It Doing squeezes away. Yeah, and it squeezes out the room that it takes to write yeah. the kind of songs that you'd want to write, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I went out in September. It was a two-week residency in a little cabin on a, on a point looking out over Lake Superior. And then, lo and behold, you know, the Park Service is maybe the last institution in the country that knows how to leave somebody alone and not bother <laughs> them,
1: you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I mean that's what that's all they do is try to leave things alone and not mess them up. So they didn't, they didn't bother me. They didn't make demands of me. They didn't. Uh, they really just let me work out there and enjoy the park. And it was it's very fruitful.
1: Can you talk about as a writer what that kind of solitude that you experienced on the island does for you and for your work?
0: Yeah, I can say that. You know, if you're if you weren't prepared for it. you ask too much of of the experience you might come away with nothing or not much it could have gone that way for me i i think that what everybody wants to believe is is if you go off to a cabin somewhere some magic some you know the god of magic and 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 poems is going to come to you and just bless you with songs (laughs) It, it just doesn't work that way it's like i was I had a, a few things in process. I'd been writing and working on stuff for a while. I just needed the sustained attention to complete the thoughts, you know. And and once you know seven or eight songs were completed, then I also was in the mode to start new things from scratch. You know, I had I brought more poetry books and history books than I did food. <laughs> I mean, I just uh, it's such a it's such a gift to not be bothered for a while and solitude you know a lot of cool really cool work can be done in the in the marketplace of ideas and in the uh, (laughs) on the road and in these busy noisy places but after a while you better be able to hear yourself think um because i wanted the songs to come from a deep place of quietude and not from just a noisy place you know these are yeah
1: I found this great quote from you about your subconscious. So it says, your subconscious is always trying to help you. It's collecting information. It's where free association comes from. Yeah. It sounds like you have a pretty good grasp of your subconscious. Is that true?
0: I think I've made better friends with it um, in the last couple of years than I have ever. You know, I think that I've learned how to listen when it, when it, uh, it's speaking up, whether it be in dreams or whether it be in a passing phrase or a, a line or a word that kind of resonates in the middle of the day. And when you're busy, you collect these things in your notebook. And if you're lucky, somebody gives you a cabin and some days <laughs> where you can actually spread them out like a map in front of you and start to see you know, where, the, where the paths are. But, yeah, you have to be friends with your subconscious. You have to make some kind of peace and be friends so it's not just, uh, you know, screaming at you all day and you're ignoring it.
1: <laughs> just ignoring it, yeah. Would you liken subconsciousness to, like, intuition? For sure. I don't know if they're the same thing, but they seem pretty related, you know, so intuition is definitely absolutely something that people often ignore
0: absolutely yeah the flash you know the the flashing thought that you know if you weren't paying attention you would miss it and it would go away but that might be the thing that's of brilliance that in, that someone else was ready for and was able to follow you know it's like mm-hmm. it's the difference between I heard it described that 90 percent of people who visit Yellowstone National Park they on, only see 10 percent of the park because they drive the road that goes to Old Faithful. They get out and take a couple pictures and then they drive on and they're still looking at the world through, basically through a screen, which is a window, you know, and -hmm. your your subconscious is the other 90% of the park that if you get off on a trail... Some shit might happen, you know, you better be ready.
1: So how did this experience on the island affect your relationship to climate change?
0: Well, I was fortunate enough to meet two individuals, Rolf and Candy Peterson, have been doing the moose and wolf study program for 40 years. It's the longest-running research program of its kind where, you know, every year they go out and they count the moose the best they can and they count the wolves and they, they study um, skeletal remains of the moose to find out if they were, you know, if they were hunted and preyed and, and and or if they were injured or it's just it's it's so remote and so consistent that you know they when I was there they explained to me there's approximately 1,700 moose on this island eating themselves out of house and home and there's only two wolves left down from 50 in the 90s and they're they're inbred, and they're they, they're not able to hunt, and it's out of balance. And I just thought, especially, as like, at first glance, this place is pristine. It's untouched wilderness. It's like, you know, it's, it's like Jurassic Park, the most beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, one island surrounded by 300 smaller islands in the middle of the biggest lake and all that stuff. But once you start to look closely, you realize if that place is not immune to climate change you know lake superior is warming up there's no ice road no new wolves can cross over to the island then if that place is not immune then then no place is immune and i think that was the wildest place i'd ever been but still there was you know there was uh, old abandoned mines on the island there was abandoned fisheries like they tried to figure out how to make this place profitable and in the 70s they said well f- forget it we'll just make it a park <laughs> but
1: um smooth move
0: yeah right yeah. yeah that's you know the climate change stuff was already in my consciousness from some of the activism here in Minnesota from Winona LaDuke and from Standing Rock uh, the anti-pipeline things that are going on there's a An Arctic explorer that lives here in Minnesota named Will Steger who has been partnering with Al Gore and Bill McKibben you know there's a lot of awareness in Minnesota but I think being out there in the middle of nowhere and just saying wow even this place is getting clobbered you know that brought Mm. things to light
1: Stranger Angels I've read is a record about thin places. Can you explain that concept of thin places?
0: You know, was, I mean, I feel like there are those that could do a much better job. I understand it as being, you know, quite often it's a place that you feel it before you think it, you know, and it's um it's a place whether by strangeness of geography or 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 maybe by human interaction you know ritual vision quest um it's a place where it's not so difficult to understand our connection to the spirit world you know and Mm. even the woods Mm. the woods at night i mean if you if you saw the video that i did for stranger angels it's got all this night camera footage of um animals in the dark, you know, doing crazy animal things, you know, for no audience. I don't, if that's not, you know, I don't know what the difference between that and spirits are, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And so thin places are, yeah, they're charged places. They're places where maybe the hair on the back of your neck stands up, you know, uh, and they're all over the place. They really are. They can, it doesn't have to be nature. It can be, it can be. A certain location deep in the in the midst of Manhattan, it can be, you know, Bear Butte in South Dakota in the Black Hills, Devil's Tower. I just think that, yeah, they're places of significance where you realize how small you are.
1: So this topic makes me think about your grandmother where you so she passed away soon before you got to go to the island and you said, I didn't really get to mourn her properly until I went out into the woods and was free enough to do so. So how did you connect with her during your time on the island?
0: All these things we're talking about fit together. Part of it's intuition. It's like my grandma was such a, was such a, such a presence, such a voice, such a sensitivity that it's hard to believe that that goes away when someone dies. And I'm, you know, I'm also, I feel like I'm a pretty skeptical person. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't really buy into heaven or hell ideas after a while. And, um, but I just, I, the unnameable connection you feel with, you know, someone who used to sit right in front of you is now in the ground, but I still in my consciousness think of her as sitting right in front of me. I still hear things that she would say. I still have ideas of what she might think. So there's a closeness, and, and also it's whatever she taught me, and not just her but many others, you know, that's those are the a lot of the driving factors that help me encounter my world. If, you know, those are her ideas in a lot of ways, her values. So they're transferable. and. You know, they say that matter is not created or destroyed, and I think spirit is much the same. I remember after John Trudell passed away, I, I saw Louise Erdrich, the novelist, right here in Minneapolis, and I talked briefly, and I said, you know, it's I'm glad we got to work with him. It's, it's sad that he's gone. And she just kind of laughed, and she said, that. I said, I don't, I don't think a voice like that is, could ever possibly be gone. And I understand what she meant, you know. It's you could say it's memory, keeping someone's memory alive, but it's also there's some kind of communication that you have, you know. Um, call it intuition, call it even reminiscence or memory, genetic memory or something. But it's it's mm-hmm. it's, it's a real thing. It's just as mo- it's, it can be more mo- motivating than a Facebook ad telling you that you need to buy new shoes. I mean, <laughs> I. <laughs> I'd rather believe the former, you know?
1: Yeah. I want to talk about Every Wind, a song on the new album, which um, I read about is a celebration of women. This song was inspired by a postcard you found at a trading post. Can you talk about the inspiration?
0: I found myself on the island writing all these songs that if I was at home or on the run, I just wouldn't have had the the time or the patience to see them through. And I, I literally had the postcard. You know, it's just... What it is is it's a, you know, it's a woman standing on the shores of Lake Superior. She's also on the cover of the record. That's mm-hmm. that, it's um, a beautiful cover. Thank you. It's, I think so too. It's a friend of mine, Cheyenne Randall, made the cover. And he honestly, he had made the image, Every Wind, against the hymnal before before I even asked him. And what was inspiring, I guess, was just, you know... This is 1907. This photograph by Roland Reed, and it's it just says every wind. There's not, there's no place on Google where you could find out more information about this human being that lived. You know, that's all that we know. But she had a name. She had a life. So this song, you know, without getting too deep or even political, it's really just a celebration of. You know, how do you pull someone's memory up out of the depths, you know, and dust it off and bring it back to light? And we're doing this all the time. I mean, you know, this is what Rick Rubin did to Johnny Cash before he passed away. This is, you know, something valuable has been maybe, you know, passed by or trampled over. And maybe it's time to go back and recover it and amplify it so we don't lose other valuable things, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, that was kind of the idea. And then also, I mean, the morning after Trump won the election, everyone from my girlfriend to my mother, all the women that I spoke to, the first response was fear. It was this deep sadness and this deep fear, like all of a sudden they weren't safe. And what a horrific feeling, you know, to have, um, Mm -hmm. And so part of it is this idea that, you know, a woman has endured all, all that man has done and continues to birth the world, you know, and to sort of ground and ground the toxic parts of it. And create life, and so all those things. this kind of Im- I know that sounds. That's a lot.
1: Well, I like how you were like not to get too deep or political, and then you were like, <laughs> I'm gonna get super deep, and also Trump. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, I, I have a tendency to, right, to, yeah. to tell you exactly what I'm not gonna do before I do it. But, yeah. Brace
1: yourself, here it comes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's cool. No, I love it. I love everything that you've said. I was um, in in preparing for this interview. I was like, oh, my God, like it, it sounds like you are somebody who just really I mean, you're you are always like speaking poetically. So every interview answer you would give, I would have like a thousand ideas for what to talk to you about. <laughs> this is actually kind of a challenge to prepare for this. But I think we're doing OK. I
0: think so. Uh, I don't know if I've ever done an interview <laughs> where someone was as familiar, and prepared and, uh, you know, and actually had attuned to the some of these details so it's it's even a challenge for me and I'm really grateful
1: oh it doesn't sound like it and thank you very much so I got one more question here and then we've had such serious conversation here and I want to know a little bit about something I don't have anything like specific but like we've talked about spirituality and intuition and the rights of indigenous people and the rights of women and all these like very serious and heavy topics. But I also get the sense just because you're somebody who really values friendship and really values community and um, thriving with other people that maybe humor is in your world somehow. And I just wanna hear about where it is.
0: Oh God, it's uh, (laughs) uh, without which there shall be no, there will be no anything else. I mean, to me, there's a special class of human beings on the front lines of every social movement and they're always the comedians. I mean, and
1: yeah, you I, you mentioned Mitch Hedberg.
0: Yeah, he's absolutely. a
1: very uh, thoughtful comedian.
0: Oh God, and you know, when I talk about John Trudell, uh, you know, his core, his corollary was George Carlin. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think the thing we've learned, you know, you can't insult somebody and then hope to change their mind. And I don't know the pines, even the pines, we had a we had we, I don't, we had a very interesting way of going about, you know. Our, our shows, and it was to lay down these heavy, heavy songs and then literally, you know, joke about what the cop who pulled us over had to say to us in this small <laughs> town. And um, <laughs> is, humor is, is so essential. And at the end of the day, I mean, surrounding myself with friends who, <laughs> who can cut something to shreds with a joke in an instant, I mean... I find a lot of things really funny. I, th- I find uh, yesterday, for example, I was in Duluth. I'm playing a festival with Winona LaDuke, who was a vice presidential candidate with Ralph Nader. She's founds this massive organization, and they send a, a television reporter down to the festival to interview her and I. This kid, he's pretty young, but he's literally clipping... Mic onto her shirt, and he says to her, "Now, have you ever done a television interview before?" Mm. <laughs> and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and it was just like—I mean, it was hysterical. It's like—I uh, mean, of course, he had no idea who he was talking to. There's no one, probably within a thousand miles, that had done more interviews, right? You know. But after <laughs> she got done, I said, "You know, I think that went pretty well for your first time." You know and she said well she said tonight will probably be the first time that you're on stage I hope that goes well for you as well you know Um, so yeah it's good it's just it is you're absolutely right It's, it's critical and actually humor is a way to show people that you're that you're paying attention and then you give a damn, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially in a live music situation.
1: You mean that if you're a performer on stage and you bring humor into, like, whatever you're talking about, it's, like, that you care about the audience and want to relax them and yeah, or I something th- like
0: that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And that, you know, a lot of times what what's funny is what happened five minutes ago, you know? Um, yeah. And... You know they're masters out there I remember I was having a conversation with Iris Dement and I said you know I said Iris is it is it true you know that John Prine it, before every show he has to have two Dairy Queen hot dogs I said I've heard that somewhere she says oh god no that's not true <laughs> at all she says Dairy Queen french fries <laughs> and he only takes one bite he only eats half of each fry, and then he throws the other one away. You know, <laughs> and I'm just like, "Well, thanks for clearing that up for me." <laughs> I'm so glad to know that now. You know. All
1: right, so I got one more question. It kind of bounces off of that. So um, the album "Stranger Angels." There is two different forces on it: solace versus community. I don't know if they're con- they're not conflicting, but the album actually marries the two together very well, because you wrote these songs in such solace on the island, but then recorded them among a very lovely community of musicians. Now, for you, can you talk about the conflicting forces you feel when it comes to loving both solitude and community?
0: It would be pretty hard to uh, imagine one without the other. I mean, it's a cliche to say they're two sides of the same coin, but I mean, I, you know, I was in theology school. I was considering, you know, sort of a, it occurred to me to live in try to, a monastic experience in life like Thomas Merton or something and to shut yourself away. And it's really easy to overthink all these things. But what, you know, what feels right is, is to have, you know, to have an individual vision and to carry it forth in the world with with friendships and partnerships, like I think, that per living in pretty urgent times, if you have something that might help people, you probably better get out there and learn how to talk to some folks and learn how to spend it and uh, throw it, you know, into the pile of supplies that we're gonna need to fix <laughs> the shit that's going on. Because don't mm-hmm. you know, Don't withhold, you know. And at the same time, what I know too is after you know a year of touring performing, collaborating. It's like, you know, I haven't written any, anything new in quite a while. And in order to get back there and, you know, sort of turn the page and turn turn the soil, it's going to I'm going to probably have to do it on my own, you know. So they revolve mm-hmm. like kind of like phases of the moon, but any beautiful thing you create, you're not making it just for yourself, you know. It's like I think there's an impulse to create it. There's an impulse to share it and then there's the, the total shit show of having to figure out how to sell it. And that's the <laughs> worst part by far. So
1: yep, hundred percent agree. We've got great content. We just don't have the
0: audience. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it takes a while. It really does uh, <laughs> yeah. you know.
1: Well, David, you have great content.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Will you will you do something kind of silly with me right now? So we do a thing called the lightning round? Yeah. All right, good. So we'll take a break and come back and do the lightning round. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co. L-I-N at mcdean.co to get one. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on their website, WIUPFM.org. All right, David Huckfelt, are you ready for the lightning round?
0: Yeah, inasmuch as I have no idea what it entails, yes.
1: You will like it. These are just like quick one or two word... Answers to these questions. Okay. Okay, here we go. Dogs or cats or something else?
0: Dogs and something else.
1: <laughs> what is your favorite U.S. city?
0: Astoria.
1: Who is your favorite teacher?
0: Uh, I would say Mrs. Merrill, my fourth grade teacher who read uh, the BFG and printed up her own money for classrooms so we could buy gum and chocolate.
1: Oh man, what a socialist. <laughs> first album you bought with your own money?
0: I think it was probably um, Mark, uh, excuse me, Dire Straits, um, Money for Nothing, the Dire Straits record.
1: Um, what was your first concert? Uh,
0: the, the surviving members of the band Survivor uh, playing, <laughs> <laughs> playing Eye of the Tiger uh, at, in Iowa, yeah.
1: Wow, so epic. Um, What is your dream collaboration?
0: Oh, man. Uh, Living or dead? It's a dream, so whatever you want. Oh, then in that case, I think I'd probably want to be locked in a studio with Howlin' Wolf and a band and just see if anything, if I could survive that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, Beatles or Rolling Stones? Uh, Both. Gibson... Or Martin? You know,
0: I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a through and through Gibson guy. I feel like if you drop a Gibson and it falls off its stand, it's much more likely to survive and sound better than a Martin, which might be a little hurt by the experience.
1: Uh, okay, one more. What is a random fact about anything that I might not know?
0: Well, you forced me into a corner by talking about myself so much, so my first thought is to tell you that I don't have a spleen and that I now I'm looking at um uh, my middle toes on both feet and they're uh they're stuck together. They're I don't they're uh they're fused. I have uh I have web toes. So I don't think Whoa. you knew that.
1: I, d- I actually didn't know that. Okay. Um, but thank you for sharing.
0: You're very welcome.
1: That's amazing. David, this has been really lovely to talk to you. Um I was so, like like I said, you have such a, a beautiful outlook on the world, and I think you do us a huge service by not only writing and creating music, but also talking about your music as well. So it was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast.
0: Well, I'm completely blown away. I mean, I, <laughs> I wasn't familiar. Um, I haven't listened to your program. and. We didn't know if I should expect an interview or if you would ask me, like Winona LaDuke, if I had ever done one of these. And you know, <laughs> but just uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. It's an excellent uh, conversation. I feel like we could go for a few hours. But I thank you so much. Is what I'm yeah, trying
1: to thanks. say. Yeah, thanks, thanks, David. Yeah,
0: my pleasure, truly. <laughs>
1: I really enjoyed David's comment about how he's like, I am having trouble answering these questions. They are very intense. Uh, Well, that is the point. But I appreciate it. It is. I mean, sometimes people will try to ask me questions about my feelings, and I, you know, completely just clam up. So uh, David did a wonderful job, and I appreciate it. Check out his album, Stranger Angels. And uh, you can find show notes at cindyhouse.net. Adam Corey produced this episode of Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Music by Alex Stanton. I'm your host, Cindy House. Again, go to the website cindyhouse.net. You can also sign up for our mailing list there. You can go to our Facebook group, Basic Folk Basics. Sign up for that. and Get in on the fun and conversation that happens there. And I will talk to you next week. Okay, bye.